Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's topic is how will you compete with Amazon with my friend, Charlie Dehoney. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, Joe. It's an honor. Longtime listener. First time guest. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I should tell you guys, I was on LinkedIn well, I'm always on LinkedIn and I noticed Charlie's profile and every once in a while I'd go back and I looked, I know I looked at it two or three times. He probably thought I was stalking him, but finally I reached out to him because he's got a really interesting background. He's been there, done that, got the hat and he's worked in a lot of different kind of companies in a lot of different roles as a founder, as an executive, as an investor. So he's somebody who really understands our space and he's a football guy. So I love that too. So <laughs> anyway. Charlie, before we go any further, please introduce yourself and your company. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, Charlie Dehoney, currently serving as president of the Great Plains Division of Fitzmark, which is a third-party logistics business freight brokerage based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Nice, nice. And where are you based? I'm based out of Omaha, Nebraska. I moved here about two years ago from San Diego, and my wife didn't leave. <laughs> really? She's still in San Diego? No, she didn't leave me. She's here in Omaha. We're happy with our three boys. <laughs> I've heard really nice things about Omaha. It's a fantastic place. We're thoroughly pleased with our choice, and I don't think you'll ever get me out of Nebraska. Nice, nice. There's nothing wrong with the Midwest. Anyway, Charlie, before we go any further into the topic, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights. So grew up big family, was born in Idaho, but raised mostly in San Diego, California. Went off to college, finished my college degree at San Jose State, where I played football, varsity football player there, played on the offensive line. I started games in college at all five positions on the offensive line. Started my career going door to door at Worldwide Express, reselling Airborne Express services before Airborne was acquired by DHL. Went on a heck of a run with those guys at Worldwide, was fortunate to get some sweat equity from some really awesome entrepreneurs at a young age, which allowed me to get off uh, my late 20s, build up a small boutique freight brokerage, as well as a small chain of pack and ship stores in San Diego, where I'm from. Sold those businesses in 2014 to take on more of an angel early stage startup role, pick some winners, companies like Cargomatic, Shiphawk, and most recently was a co-founder at Airspace Technologies. Had some really fantastic experience and results throughout those organizations. And then about two years ago, set off to acquire a 50-year-old freight brokerage here in Omaha, Nebraska called Manning's Truck Brokerage. Had a real strong focus in agri-science and protein transportation. We were able to come in and, and really pump up the sales, grow the business, de-risk some of the customer concentration that we had had on the business. And we're fortunate enough to be acquired by Fitzmark in October of 2020 after just 19 months of ownership. So was really grateful for the opportunity that the private equity companies, uh, Research and Capital Partners and Optimal Investment Group gave me in coming out here and, and taking a stake in Manning's. And very much excited to reinvest and be serving in my new role here as president of the Great Plains Division, focusing on M&A here at Fitzmark. 
Nice. You said a few things. And again, I, when we were prepping, I'm always impressed with people who played college sports and even high school sports. And I never played at that level, but I've always played little league football and hockey and all those things. And, you know, when you said you were an offensive lineman and you played all five positions and then right out of that school, you went to work door to door, which is going to be one of the hardest jobs. And I think that what you just described at your beginnings is just the ability to grind. And it all sounds very high flying what you're doing now, like acquiring companies, investing, all this, but it all begins with that grind. And I love that. Yeah, I was fortunate. You know, the culture that was defined at Worldwide Express really melded with my athletic background, really results oriented. And there was a guy really running the company at that time named Joe Judson. While David Kiger was the CEO and Tom Medine was an executive in the business at that time, Joe was really the field manager the vice president of sales that got us all inspired and fired up and would come out in the field and burn shoe leather with us, check in with us late on the day on a Friday and really keep us engaged. And, you know, I talk to a lot of my friends now where they look at kind of my lifestyle and sort of some of the opportunities I get to work on. And I get to spend all of my time working with great people that I love to spend time with, which is really true luxury in itself. But, you know, none of those people would have wanted to trade jobs with me in 2003, going door to door offering Airborne Express services, listening to every Karen and Pam and Peg come out from behind the <laughs> cubicle and tell you about their lost payroll from eight years ago. But it was a great opportunity, great experience, and it was a franchise-based company back in those days. So the sweat equity you know, opportunities that came to some of us at a very young age was just life-changing. Yeah, I'm a big believer that kids should play sports or be in plays or whatever it is that teaches you to grind it out. It was seldom the greatest player on the team, but I never missed practice and my parents would never allow it. I mean, never miss practice. And after a while, that just becomes your lifestyle. And then work is easy. <laughs> so I'm raising three sons right now. They're all playing sports continuously. They're 10, 7, and 4. They're absolutely the light of my life. And our rule in our family, my wife was a was an All-American sprinter. I was a Division One college football player. Oh, these are born to be athletes. Well, you know what? Our, our rule is you don't have to be the best player, but you do have to be the best teammate. That's what my dad used to always tell me. So my dad would say, you know, you're never going to play pro football or pro hockey or pro baseball. You're never going to be in the Olympics as a swimmer, but you're going to be the best guy you can be. And that was always such a great message. So enough of my being a fanboy. So today's topic is how will you compete with Amazon? And first off, tell me what you mean by that. When we first started talking, you kind of brought up this topic. What do you mean by when you say, how will I compete with Amazon? I'm not competing with Amazon. So the reality is our industry has changed so much in the last, you know, 10 years. And really, it's been accelerated over the last five and, and certainly inside of the last nine or 10 months since COVID has hit. We've seen these defined milestones of acceleration in, in the injection of technology and capital into our industry. So competing with Amazon, in my mind, is really like an analog of competing with all of the tech-enabled, big money, digital sort of focused transportation service providers out there from your flex ports in the freight forwarding industry to your convoys, your cargomatics, and your Ubers and the truck brokerage. And don't forget, Amazon's a truck broker as well. But with all of the access to capital and technology that some of these companies have, it's really important that we're all sort of keeping an eye on the future and making sure that our businesses are positioned to continue to thrive and grow. 
Right. So let's talk about some of the things that they have that the average, let's just say, freight broker, 3PL, freight forwarder doesn't have. Well, what's the first thing that they have that the average company doesn't? Well, Amazon specifically, but all the tech-enabled folks, you know, what they're aiming for is scale, right? So there's a great debate out there right now about uh, certain tech-enabled brokers going out there and, and acquiring market share, using their venture capital to drive rates all the way down to acquire the market share so then they can build their businesses on top of that freight. But Amazon, don't forget, is the largest shipper in the U.S. They control the most freight. They're also a licensed freight broker, an NVOCC. They're an IAC, an indirect air carrier, so they can forward their own freight. They have their own planes, and they have their own final mile division. So they have the size and scope to squash anybody anytime. They're undefeated from e-commerce to web services. Amazon has never lost. Yeah, yeah. When we're prepping for this, I mentioned that every time I talk about this topic, is you got to worry about the guys from Silicon Valley. They're ten and zero, (laughs) and they aren't afraid of the next industry that they uh, approach. So, so the first one is they're just plain and simple a juggernaut. They got the scale, the volume, the the expertise to keep coming. So, what's another thing that they have that the average company that they're competing with in the freight space doesn't have? So they've got access to capital, you know, and and I think, Joe, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw in the C.H. Robinsons, the J.B. Hunts of the world into this conversation who are heavily, heavily reinvesting back into technology. So whether it's access to the capital that they've generated through cash organically, whether they're leveraging venture capital or private equity money, you know, these organizations that are innovating and scaling quickly, they all have access to more money than the bootstrap businesses of 25 years ago. Yep. And, you know, I should also mention this. Um, I, I had a chance to spend some time at C.H. Robinson with their team, and I was so impressed with them. For many years, I just I envisioned C.H. Robinson as just a whole bunch of guys making phone calls, just a huge room of, of smiling and dialing. And then I spent some time up at their uh, headquarters and got the tour of their tech facilities. And I was like, damn, this looks more like Google than a freight brokerage. So those guys, to your point, there's some companies that are kind of transforming them. So even though they're kind of the old guard of transportation, they look more and more like a tech company. That's exactly right. And they can raise money because they're publicly traded and they're not the only one. So it's not just Amazon and all the guys who are Silicon Valley. It's the big guys who are just in the industry who you know have the ability to get bigger and bigger because of the access to capital. So What's another thing that these guys have that the average 3PL or broker doesn't have? So I think either this, the scale and the access to capital and, and the sort of technology routes really allows them to drive a much different customer experience. We're also focused on using our phones and having this sort of mobile fluid lifestyle that we kind of expect that the consumerization of the enterprise has been a real thing for the last four or five years. And these folks that we're talking about in this category have the expertise and the ability to deliver that customer experience. Yeah, I got to tell you, so there's a guy, and I go to Michigan football games, except this year because there's no no fans, but I have season tickets and a guy who parks by me. So I tailgate with him for a decade. I'd see him just during football season. And I remember asking him, Who's moving your freight now? I, I don't move freight, so I don't particularly care, but I was curious, right? He's a purchasing guy at a mid-sized company. He pulls out his phone and shows me an app. And this is maybe five, six years ago. And I was like, oh, well, that's cool. And I thought to myself, and he said, you know, Joe, when I'm sitting, we have a morning meeting. I walk in. I don't bring my laptop. I sit down. And when somebody says, hey, we didn't get this load of this or we didn't get that, he says, I'm just scrolling through my phone. And he says, it's it's beautiful. And I was thinking, wow, 
And five, six years ago, that seemed like kind of a stunner to me. Not impossible, but kind of interesting. And I think to myself, yeah, this is where it's all moving. You know, that that's not like the average 3PL. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, things have changed. And I tell people all the time that yesterday's fast is today's normal, right? And today's fast is going to be tomorrow's normal. It's never going back the other way. Yeah, exactly. And I do work with a lot of guys from the Silicon Valley side of the house, of the, although they could be in Texas just as easily or in Omaha these days. So it's interesting. They do talk more about the customer experience and they talk about we're going to make that customer experience different and better using technology usually. Absolutely. It's got to be core to their sort of going forward strategy, really, for them to, I would say, fall into this category of tech-enabled folks and sort of future service providers that we're talking about. Yep. So what's another thing that these guys have that the average 3PO or broker does not have? Well, I think Mindshare is the number one thing, right? There's people out there that are looking for tech-forward service providers. There's individuals inside these organizations, these shippers, that are looking for innovation. They're looking to leverage technology. And so companies like Amazon, when 25 years ago, you would probably live months without ever hearing the word Amazon, but now you can't live minutes without hearing that word or using that word. And Uber is very similarly, you know, moving in that direction whereby, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Uber was not really a word that came up a lot, but now between their people delivery business, their food delivery business, their growing freight business, and everything else that they're sort of taking us towards and flying cars and men on the moon, those are all the things that sort of are transcending uh, the traditional marketing strategies that people would just put Coke and Pepsi in front of you a million times until you picked one. The sort of continuous plugged in nature of our culture now, we're always on social media, we're always on our phones. And Uber and Amazon meet us there all the time. And they're always there to answer our questions or help us deal with our problems. Right. And, you know, just the fact that, you know, you heard the word Uber seldom back in the day when it was just a word, not a company. And now you hear it used kind of almost as a verb, like, oh, they're going to Uber this industry or this, they're going to have an Uber model. Everybody kind of knows what you mean. Or, and we've all heard it in transportation and logistics is the guy says, hey, I was in a, the vice president of logistics says, I order stuff from Amazon, I get it in two days. Why can't I track my shipments the same way? Why can't I have that experience? 100%. You know, and I think um, that mindshare sort of issue is what prompts some of these heated debates that we've seen online lately. Like you and I were talking earlier about the great freight debate, where a simple post shared by a convoy <laughs> employee incited what became the biggest LinkedIn scuttlebutt in the freight brokerage industry history all over Convoy's approach to dedicating capacity and re-leveling rates on a more regular basis. And it really brought out some of the godfathers of the industry into like a bare knuckle fistfight on LinkedIn. And I think a lot of it just becomes down to the fact that people recognize Convoy's better at getting inside the brains of shippers than any other freight broker ever has been. And so we've all got to give them credit for that. Yep. And, you know, I think part also is a lot of other people might have done it and it's really not particularly threatening to anyone, right? Or even a concern. But because it is one of those names, right now, if Amazon came out and said something audacious, you go, ooh, that could happen. If I said something audacious, somebody goes, yeah, that's not necessarily going to happen. Joe just spouting off again. Yeah, I think that's fair. So one last thing, let's talk about one last thing in um, its, its worldview. Talk about the worldview that these guys have, these venture capital tech-enabled companies. 
Well, you know, speaking from my own experience, you know, I was employee number one at Cargomatic. I wrote one of the first checks into the business and I saw the product when it was really two founders working out of an apartment and dreaming up this idea of summoning a straight truck through an app. You know, you fast forward a couple of years from there and I became friends with Dan Lewis at Convoy when he was incubating the idea while still not yet started the business. Dan was thinking about a couple of concepts at the time, one e-commerce driven and one was this Uber for trucking model. And with my experience from Cargomatic and sort of passion for the industry, Dan and I were fast friends and spent a lot of hours back then ideating about, you know, what that solution might need to look like. And I think where Dan took it and where a lot of folks in the industry are are sort of thriving off of the experience now is is Dan is a curious, curious person. And he spent a lot of time er, in his earliest days observing, watching shippers, understanding their needs, and really taking this sort of inside-out view of the industry as opposed to taking this myopic, narrow-minded path like, hey, I'm a trucking guy. I'm going to look at everything from a trucking perspective. You know, I mean, Dan is like, a, he's a Yale guy. You know, I mean, he's a super smart person. So he's a, he's a scientist at heart, and he's really... I think it helped advance our industry and a number of folks have by just being willing to kind of stop, watch and listen before they make any kind of bets on how something should work or what the right solution is. Excellent. So we talked about five things that these guys, these are the Amazon, as you said, you're using it kind of as a analog. The things that they have, they have the scale, the volume that makes them somewhat invincible. They're juggernauts. Number two, they have access to capital. They're either VC backed or they're, you know, publicly traded, right? These are companies that can get money a lot easier than the average company. They really work on that customer experience. The customer experience that they bring is usually something they've given a lot of thought to, invested a lot of money into. Then they have Mindshare. Everyone kind of knows their name. Everybody kind of knows what they bring to an industry. And the last thing is they have a worldview. And the worldview they have is we're going to change the world. When you work for a Silicon Valley company or a VC-backed company, you say, we're going to bring a brand new business model. We're going to change the world here. This is not going to be steady 5% or 10% growth. That's not what they're looking for. Am I right? Right. That's exactly right. So, how do we compete with these companies? I know you've been on both sides of the aisle on this one. So how does the average transportation logistics company compete against these juggernauts? So I think the folks that are really finding success and thriving in this world where it seems like all these digital guys are encroaching on the traditional service providers, but really it comes down to like specializing and having a niche and really focusing on that niche and leaning into the niche, right? And doing exactly what you did, you know, years ago, Joe, which is creating that position of knowledge and expertise in a specific area, which for you was logistics and helped bring a lot of folks into, you know, that space. You saw it coming and you knew there was going to be a lot of people with a lot of questions. And I think about it a lot. It's, it feels like there's a lot more people in logistics now than there was 20 years ago. But guess what? There is. Logistics has come to the forefront of our society, right? E-commerce and yeah. intertwined commerce with transportation and supply chain. So I guess where I'm going with this is you can't be everything to everybody, right? The folks that go out there and try to boil the ocean and say yes to every customer request, uh, you can't do that in the beginning. Amazon started off selling books, right? <laughs> and, and one tiny puddle led them to the next pond, which helped them win the lake before they took over the ocean. So having a specific niche focus, 
understanding the needs of that customer base, delivering and executing again and again and again. To be successful in logistics, you can't do something for somebody one time. It's got to be repeatable and it's got to be scalable. And you can only do that if you're focused. Yep. Charlie, I do this podcast and there's a lot of marketing people on, a lot of salespeople, obviously a lot of people like you who've done great things. And I'd say every fourth, fifth podcast, third podcast, the idea of specialization or niche comes up. And I think it's so important because if you're talking to automotive guys, then become, at least have a specialization in that space. That's a huge niche. When you say, I want to move automotive aftermarket parts, those are huge businesses. And if you say, this is what we specialize in, then do it, right? It is different than delivering food to Walmart. It's different than bringing product over from China. There's all these different businesses. And what used to seem like the case was people just said, we're good for everything. I work at a big company and even the stuff I can't do, I got a buddy who does it. I'll say I can do it. Those days are over. I couldn't agree more. And I think any of us that have been in supply chain for any period of time, you know, you've learned to filter out that garbage that comes after the first one or two things that somebody does. Because if you talk to them and they say, oh, we're, you know, kind of domestic transportation over the road trucking. We also do some air freight and then boom, 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 boom. The rest of that's going to be bullshit. Let's be honest. It's going to be something that they farm out, (laughs) use a partner for. They're not going to have expertise in it. And the other thing that I tell people a lot, you know, especially folks that are just trying to get going and they're like, yeah, but we're not focused. We want to do everything. I say, stop it right now. You know, focus on one thing until you can execute and nail that. Because after you do it two or three times, guess what? You're an expert. (laughs) You are now one of the foremost leaders in expertise in that little niche or that little focus. It brings to mind when I had my pack and ship stores, one time I wrote a blog about how to ship breast milk. And then the next thing I knew, I was getting calls from women all over the country on how to transport their breast milk to the next business event that they were going to. And like, you know, within three or four of those transactions, I had that nailed and I could help people move breast milk from anywhere to anywhere throughout the country. And it all came from the simple blog. Right. I say this to a lot of young people that I talk to. They say, well, what what should I do? And I always say specialize, find a niche, be the very best at something. And I have a daughter and she was traveling for work. And she said, I sat next to this guy and he was an expert in marijuana. So as marijuana was becoming legal across many states, he was the foremost expert on the laws and on, you know, what's next in every state. And she said he was just absolutely swamped, moving from product, from event to event, speaking on this topic. And it's just because he decided to do it. And so you go, well, yeah, but I don't have that opportunity. What Charlie does and what I've done in the past, I do this podcast now, Occasionally I write an article, but Charlie writes a lot of articles. So if I decided I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write about retail logistics, I'm going to write one article a month, or I'm going to start a podcast on retail logistics, before long, to your point, Charlie, you are the expert. And that doesn't mean you just write just popcorn articles. That means you dig into it a little bit. Ideally, you've had some experience in it. That's how you do it. Agreed. And you've got to stay on top of it, right? It's got to be a constant process. You've got to stay curious about that topic to stay abreast. Right. So if you wrote one article a month for a year or started a podcast, did a dozen podcasts, you you know more than the average guy about what's to say retail logistics if you're doing it. And then at some point when you're calling on target, you say, hey, by the way, uh, come to my webinar. We're talking about blank, blank and blank. And they go, wow, this guy really gets it because You've been studying it. It wasn't just, oh, one day I just cold called them and now I'm an expert. I mean, that's going to take a little bit of time. So I love it. Anyway, 
Besides specialization and niche, what's another thing we can do to compete against the Amazons of the world? Well, I think one topic that's super hot, you know, over the last three or four years is, as the capital markets have opened up and cash is cheap, is the businesses need to be properly funded. You know, many years ago, starting a freight brokerage or a freight forwarding company or maybe a customs brokerage it was very low overhead business. And you could sort of bootstrap that business and turn it into a nice company for yourself. And I think the days of sort of the single shingle type operation, I think those are really going going away as shippers have access to more data and more service providers than ever before. So I think properly funding your business is going to be one of the most important things that, you know, a company can think about as whether you're a startup, you know, and you're looking for that first angel to come in and write the check to kind of help you prove a concept, or maybe you've got something that's starting to work and you can approach an institutional investor like a venture capital or a seed stage investor. But if you're going to approach those type of investors, there's got to be some technical component of your business. You've got to be tech enabled. That's what those guys are looking for. It's very rare to find a traditional venture capitalist that wants to go out and back a chain of frozen yogurt shops or something like that. Really, they're looking for innovation and they're looking for outsized returns and they want to invest in quality teams in big spaces that are trending in the right direction. So teams and trends are really the cornerstones of this startup. Right. So you mentioned angel investors and you mentioned venture capital. What was the other thing you mentioned? Oh, seed investors. Yeah. So first off, I like to always cover the basics. What is an angel investor and what's the difference between an angel investor and a venture capitalist? Your average angel investor invests out of their own personal capital. They're not leveraging a fund that they've raised of other people's money. Uh, They traditionally would either come from your social network or they'll come from your industry and have some sort of expertise of you as an individual and believe in you or they'll have some understanding or involvement in your industry and your space, and that will kind of allow them to be better informed. Traditionally, angel investors will write checks faster and do less diligence because they're a single person or you know maybe a, a family that's investing and they don't have the traditional resources of a venture capital company to do all the vetting. And so what's a VC? A venture capital company is, is a company that's specific purpose is to go out and raise money from wealthy individuals, high net worth individuals, pension funds, endowments, and they'll take that money and they'll invest that money in smaller denominations into startup or high growth companies. So venture capital companies have various stages from seed stage to where they're willing to write smaller checks, you know, usually under a million or two million each. And that will go towards an idea and they'll invest in a founder who has a track record or a passion or is executing in a space, but needs some money to prove the concept. You're going to find your early stage investors, which is going to be kind of your late seed stage, series A, series B. They're looking for more of an established business. What do you mean by series A and series B? Uh, Series A and series B are the sort of traditional sequencing of uh, venture capital investment. The kind of stages are when you have an idea, you might raise some money from friends and family, put in some of your own money just to seed the company. Then once that idea is looking pretty good and you're feeling more confident, you'll go out and raise a seed stage, which is kind of the normal thing to do now. That seed stage round will be less than a couple of million bucks and it'll come from angel investors or seed stage venture capital companies that really get involved early and they'll take a more sort of proactive approach on helping the founders solve the problem, prove the concept and then go out and raise the more traditional rounds, which is your Series A as your first large institutional round, 
generally, I mean, it used to be a couple million bucks in the Series A. Now you're seeing guys come out and raise 20 million bucks in our space in a Series A. And then Series B, Series C, Series D. And then generally that'll lead you to either a strategic exit or a public exit. Right. So when you see, you mentioned that these guys are going to want to see something tech enabled. And the reason they want to see something tech enabled is that what they've gotten used to is what we call hockey stick growth, right? So you think of that blade of that hockey stick going up. <laughs> they don't want to see, Hey, we're growing at 5% or 10% or 20%. They want to see really rapid growth. They're used to investing in companies like Google or Facebook or some of these other companies that really skyrocket, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they're looking to take on an exorbitant amount of risk in early stage businesses because the outsized return of the smaller percentage of their companies is going to pay back for all of the losses they take. So they're aiming for somewhere between one in five and one in 10 in their investments to be successful. And generally the returns from that 10 or 20% is going to more than recoup the losses on the losers, right? So, so, so if you've got an idea and you want to go get invested, you first off, you talk to friends and family, maybe you find angel investors like, like Charlie. Although I imagine you wouldn't be an angel after you pissed them off or wasted their money. So right. <laughs> what's the next phase of financing? Cause again, we're talking about how you go about competing against these juggernauts. Sure. Yeah. So if you're early stage, you're definitely going to want to be, you know, properly funded and make sure that you start with enough capital. A lot of folks are running, you know, sort of mid-sized or decent-sized businesses that are producing earnings and producing EBITDA, and the owner is making money, and it's a great lifestyle company, but they want to take it to the next level. And, and maybe they want to go acquire some more competitors to increase the size and scale. Maybe they want to ramp up their sales focus and sales efforts so they can build their business and gear up for an exit someday. But that is really that you're sort of mid-sized company that's going to be targeting your traditional bank lending or growth equity. And so there's never been a better time to raise money from banks as a small business right now. On the heels of the PPP, the government pushed out the Main Street Lending Program, which is making capital accessible to small and mid-sized businesses across America and really helping folks access the capital that they need to grow and scale if that's what they're looking to do. Right. So I understand bank lending. I think most of my listeners are, what, what do you mean by growth equity? So growth equity is sort of a subset of investment firms that kind of sits right between your traditional venture capitalists and your traditional private equity company. A growth equity firm is generally targeting businesses in the transportation space of about $10 million in gross revenue, top line revenue, 10 million or above. Although you're now seeing the growth equity guys come downstream and even look at earlier stage businesses because the space has gotten so hot and there's more competition. But your growth equity guys are going to look at coming in, partnering with the owner of the business, making an investment in the business, taking on a substantial stake in the business in exchange for capital. And the expectation is that capital will then be redeployed back into the business to continue to grow and develop the business. So it's a good opportunity as a founder and an owner. If you've built something that's substantial and you have this sort of appetite to stay on for the ride and your journey's not over, growth equity could be a good opportunity for you to maybe sell half of your business now, take some money out of that transaction for your own personal net worth and put it away to kind of keep your family secure and build towards your future. But then also take on the capital that you're going to need through the growth equity partnership to continue to grow and scale that business. Yeah, you, you're bringing on partners and they probably bring some different perspectives, maybe some expertise that you might not even have to help you get to the next level. 
along with the money. A hundred percent. You know, most, most business owners didn't become successful because they're the most well-rounded business person in the room. Most business owners become successful because they're the hardest workers in the room. So having that sort of more banker driven perspective and a partner whose only responsibility is to help you grow the value of your business so that they can participate in an exit with you in the next few years. It's exciting and exhilarating for some. That type of financing structure worked out extremely well for us in the Manning's acquisition in 2019 and our divestment in 2020. But not everybody has the stomach to work with partners that are going to be asking hard questions every day. Yeah, that's a big challenge. I mean, and you're bringing in guys who are probably just as hard charging and they've invested money. And I will always imagine if your name's on the building and it's been your baby and then you sell half of it and somebody says, hey, this is how I'd like to do it going forward. You're like, whoa, wait a sec. I've been making all the decisions here. Yeah, all of a sudden you're not the smartest guy in the room and you've got to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you talked about early stage, which is the angels and the VCs. You talked about you know mid-sized companies doing bank lending and or growth equity. What's the last stage? I know you talked about one more when we were prepping. So yeah, if you're a large size, these are the organizations that have reached the scale of 100 million, 250 million, 500 million, a billion dollars in top line revenue. You know, they're going to be looking for one of three kind of exit types. You know, you're going to have a strategic exit where a competitor could come in and acquire you. You know, you may or may not need to stay on as the operator for a period of time, but they're going to come in and holistically absorb your operations and take you over. Private equity might be an opportunity. We've seen a huge influx in private equity in the last 15 years coming in and acquiring, in particular, done very well in the third-party logistics and brokerage space, coming in, helping the team pump up the sales, grow the business, maybe make a couple of mergers, and then retrade to another private equity group inside of a few years. Right. So what's the difference between a private equity company and, say, a growth equity? So growth equity is generally going to come in and take on a smaller percentage of the business and write a smaller check into a smaller company. Your private equity companies, they're looking to come in and take on a major stake inside the organization, potentially leverage up the equity of the existing executive team to kind of incentivize them to stay on and grow the business. But the private equity company, you know, very similarly to the growth equity company, they're looking to take the business to the next stage and then sell it inside of, call it two to five years. Right. And that's kind of what we're doing. When we talk about this, getting back to the topic, how will you compete with Amazon and all the Amazon lookalikes? What you're saying is if if you got an idea, it's got to be venture capital or angel because you're saying it's harder to bootstrap. And if you're a mid-sized company, you say, hey, look, I want to grow up. I want to get bigger. I want to have some clout. You might want to get bank lending and or this growth equity. Then last is I might want to acquire people and or maybe be acquired, right? Might want to check out, not have to compete against Amazon. So these are some of the ways that we can go about that. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. Along with focusing on the customer experience and keeping sort of that niche and your head down on your focus and your niche, I think, you know, those are, you know, taking on capital partners isn't for everybody. There's endless examples of people that have been successful in our space with a bootstrap model. Now, is that getting harder as more and more capital comes into this space? Probably so. Are there still examples of it happening today? Absolutely. Companies that are going unfunded and still finding success. But these are just some of the ways that companies that don't have a plan can start thinking about creating one. Right. And, you know, Charlie, we didn't talk too much about this offline, but let's face it, if you can grow and make a lot of money, you don't necessarily have to get to the size of Amazon to be successful. What we're talking about is 
if you really want to compete, and let's just say you look and say, Amazon's going to step into my space, I'm going to have to do something to compete against them. And to your point, maybe I just get real focused on a niche and I get the right investment, whatever that looks like, you just described them, and say, I'm going to wait it out, going to make a lot of money, and maybe Amazon buys me or somebody else buys me. There's still a lot of money to be made before your Amazon size. There's no question about it. Logistics is one of the greatest industries in the world. It's an amazing opportunity to build wealth and, and create a great lifestyle. But you know, I think it's also time that everybody in the industry remains eyes wide open. Amazon is not going into the logistics business. They're already there. They've been there for years, and we're going to continue to hear the name come up as we move forward. Excellent. Excellent. So this has been great, Charlie. So if you don't mind, please summarize this topic for us. So I'd say that every company out there needs to have a strategy for moving into the future and continuing to advance the digital footprint inside the organization, continue to digitize the customer experience and continue to find ways to solve problems that the customers aren't even aware of yet, because that's what innovation is bringing into our industry. And that's really the perspective we need to approach our day to day with. Excellent. So before you go, Charlie, tell us a little bit what's going on over at Fitzmark. So Fitzmark is a 13-year-old freight brokerage started in Indianapolis, owned by Scott Fitzgerald, and they've been growing extremely rapidly over the last 24 months. Mannings is the third acquisition that they've made. There's a fourth that will be announced soon, all happening, you know, that'll make the third of 2020. So we've got some internal goals of making four to five more acquisitions a year for the next couple of years and then reach a scale where we can have a lot of options. So what do you guys specialize in freight-wise? So our brokerage now, the combined entities of Fitzmark, Logistics Made Simple in Chattanooga and Birmingham, and now Manning's Truck Brokerage in Omaha, really kind of help us offer a wide array of services from your sort of standard down the fairway freight brokerage to what made Logistics Made Simple famous in the South is their focus on open deck and flatbed freight, really servicing the construction industries. And then here at Manning's, we're the sort of corn belt specialist focused in agri-sciences, moving more seed than any broker in the U.S. in and around the corn belt, as well as a lot of beef products and beef byproducts, as you can imagine, being right here in Omaha, the beef capital of the world. You're not just talking about it. You guys are actually doing it. You guys have developed these specialized niches. And that sounds as if that's kind of almost Fitzmark's strategy is we're going to go get guys who are very focused in a space. That's exactly right. Instead of trying to be that sledgehammer that works for everything, we want to have a series of single purpose hammers in that tool bag to be able to offer the customers. Awesome. So how do I uh, reach out to you and Fitzmark? Yeah, you can find me anytime on Twitter at Charlie Dehoney. That's Charlie with an E-Y. You can also find me on my website, charliedehoney.com. Yep. I'll put a link to your website. I'll put a link to Fitzmark's website and to your LinkedIn profile. Also, you guys should know Charlie does some writing. Where does your writing appear? Yeah, so I'm a regular contributor on FreightWaves. It's a passion project, but it's something that I really enjoy. So check me out over there as well. Yeah, I looked at some of Charlie's articles. If you liked what you heard today, check him out over FreightWaves. FreightWaves wouldn't be working with him if he didn't know what he's talking about. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. And thank you for all you've done for the industry over the last 10 or 12 years. I've been following from a distance and super happy to be your friend now. Yeah, thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. And and I also appreciate all the listeners. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Your continued support's very much appreciated. Till next time, onward and upward. 
You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 